Well, foster care, in, as it was modernized, um, not its inception, but as it was modernized, was actually in-home services, primarily afforded to white mothers. Mm-hmm. And then as Black people gained more rights in the 50s and forward, um, they did not want Black mothers to access those in-home services, especially with this whole like hysteria around the child welfare queen, right? So then instead of offering in-home services, they then created out-of-home foster care because they did not want to give money to Black mothers, but they would say, Mm -hmm. we will take care of your child if you cannot take care of them. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Susana Munoz. Today on the podcast, we're discussing college students who have experienced foster care. As we get ready to welcome college students back to our college campuses, how are we mindful of our language around family, parent support, or how we're using asset-based framing in our work with college students with foster care experiences? Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope that you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com on Twitter. Our episodes today are sponsored by Leadership and Everfly. Uh, As I mentioned, I'm your host, Susana Munoz. My pronouns are she, her, hers, ella. I'm broadcasting from Colorado. Uh, Fort Collins, near the campus of Colorado State University, which occupies the ancestral homelands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute people. From wherever you're listening today, we urge you to investigate the original occupants of the land. I am thrilled to have the following individuals present for today's conversation. Let me introduce our panelists. We have Angela Hoffman, Kenyon Lee Whitman, and Royale Johnson. So if each of you can introduce our yourselves to our listeners. Please tell us a little bit about your interests and how you're entering into the conversation today. We'll start with Angela. Thank you, Dr. Munoz. I'm really excited to be here today. My name is Angela Hoffman Cooper. I use pronouns she and her, and I'm you know, really grateful for the opportunity to reflect on my positionality, and it's something that I do regularly in terms of how I enter into the work of supporting students with experience in foster care in terms of practice, research, and advocacy. Uh, I experienced foster care uh, as a teenage youth and aged out of foster care when I went to college. And so that shaped uh, my personhood and how I continue to experience the world today, but also previously as a college student, and now even still as a doctoral student, uh, as a person, as a mother, and the various other positionalities uh, that I hold. I also think it's really important for me to share that I experienced the world as a white, cisgender, pansexual, and able-bodied woman. And so those Uh, experiences and identities also intersect with my experience in foster care and some of the outcomes that maybe I have experienced that may be similar to or different from other folks with experience in foster care. Uh, I am also a part of the Foster Scholars, uh, the fosterscholars.org community of scholars who work together that have lived experience in foster care, uh, working to transform the narrative uh, to support students with experience in foster care through research practice and advocacy. And I'll be uh, focusing my dissertation work on supporting students with experience in foster care and identity development. So thank you. Thanks, Angela. Kenyon. Yes, I am Kenyon Whitman. Um, I am the um, program director of the Office of Foster Support Service at at UC Riverside. I've been in this position supporting foster youth for, um, it'll be six years on August 10th. I've been working in student affairs for over 10 years across four campuses and at every stop supporting foster youth in some capacity. Like Angela, um, I uh, was a former foster youth from ages zero to nine months and then from five years old to 18 years old. And so um, I definitely step into this work uh, with a passion and dedication to serving this population. Um, like Angela, I am also, I'm also a doctoral student set to, to defend actually a week from now. And then um, actually, um, in yes. August, I will then start a postdoc at, US, uh, at UCLA well, then, where I will continue my research on foster youth. So um, that's, that's um, how I show up to this work. 
Thank you. Wow, amazing. Thank Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Royale. Yeah, so I am Royal Johnson, uh, Assistant Professor of Higher Ed and Associate Director for the Center for the Study of Higher Education uh, at Penn State. Uh, I am a scholar who does interdisciplinary research around uh, issues related to college access, equity, and student success with a particular tension and focus on race, gender, and other axes of social inequality. For the last uh, six years, I've been really concerned with two uh, sort of institutionally marginalized populations, youth, youth in foster care, as well as those who've been impacted by the criminal justice system. I'm happy to talk more about that later because there's a lot of intersection uh, between those groups. Um, I sort of stumbled into this work, um, and I, I'll t it's a full circle moment because uh, I was at Ohio State, a uh, doctoral student working under Terrell Strayhorn, who was doing research on African-American men. So many of the young men in the studies consistently shared uh, insights about their experiences in foster care. That ultimately led to work uh, that we started doing with um, Franklin County Children's Services uh, in Columbus, Ohio. We started developing a college access program as part of an outreach commitment uh, for the research center that I worked in. But it wasn't until several years later that I realized that my own positionality was wrapped into my interest in the topic. I've been admitted from kinship care uh, for several years as a youth, but having a very limited understanding of what foster care is did not allow me to sort of see myself reflected in this work the way some of my uh, colleagues today may uh, sort of identify. So I, I think that's something that we want to get at too and demystifying what is it you know, what constitutes as foster care, the range of experiences and how that impacts the trajectories of students. Um, so I'm also part of a national conference team for the National Conference for Engaged Scholarship on Foster Alumni. So shameless plug for all the student fairs, practitioners who are looking for a space uh, to learn more about research and practice related to uh, young people impacted by foster care. Nice. One of the things I noticed uh, from all of you is um, the language that you're using in how um, the language that I see readily in higher education is foster care college students. I mean, you're using youth in foster care um, individuals or college students that have experience in foster care. So I'm assuming that's intention. Yes. Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about that. I remember, gosh, even at an ASH conference a couple of years ago, one of the first times uh, Kenyon and I had the opportunity to present together, we had a lot of conversations around how do you prefer to be referred to or how do you refer to students in your work or youth in, in your work? And there are differing perspectives, you know, I think amongst our community. And so folks have a variety of different ways that they maybe feel comfortable being referred to or not but oftentimes that person first language of person with experience in foster care is sort of the best starting place. Uh, if you don't have the opportunity to ask someone directly how they prefer to re refer to their experience. And Royal, I think you've, you've written on that in some of your pieces too of, of why you've specifically chosen that language. Yeah, you know, my commitment has been to use person first language. Uh, but I've also gone back and forth about whether or not I use alumni. And I know Kenyon has some ideas about whether or not you use alumni. Uh, and, but my own sort of commitment has been centering the people, the person, uh, leading with that as not defined, being defined by the experience in foster care. So I, I think it's best to sort of engage students and figure out how they would like to be um, referred. Uh, but my own sort of commitments have been to use person versus language. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I think for I think in many ways the reasons why so many people have different kind of ways of identifying themselves as foster in in some way is because the experiences are um, different. Not not all of them are the same. And so for someone like me who spent nearly my entire adolescence in in the care, um, I definitely identify more with being a foster youth as a part of my identity, whereas some folks might look at it as more of an experience. Maybe they were in care for a couple of years, right? Maybe they had the fortunate opportunity to be reunited with next of kin, right? And, and so for other folks, they emancipated when they're 18 or 21, depending on what state you live in, right? And, and, and so I think there's a spectrum 
of, 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 um, is an experience, is it an identity, but I think for many of the youth that I work with at UCR um, and the other campuses, it's definitely letting them let you know how they want to be identified. Yeah, thank you for that. And yeah, that's I really struggled. helpful. I've struggled with the language, like feeling confined by the language at times that was used to describe me. And so I'll never forget the first time uh, a colleague and friend of mine said, you know, when I was told I was a foster youth, I thought that's all I was ever going to be. And then it sort of clicked for her. Please say I experienced foster care because I did. I experienced mm. being moved between homes. These were experiences, not a mythical place that I went and, you know, a defined moment that ended in my life. It continu I continue to experience these things even retrospectively. And so that really changed mm -hmm. uh, my own way of reflecting on my experience and challenging the language that had been applied to me over the years. I'll just add that, you know, there's stigma also associated mm -hmm. yeah. with name and language at the individual, interpersonal, and structural level, because there are implications for how you identify and on forms and the services and so forth you benefit from or not. So, you know, folks are wrestling with um, how to identify in, in ways that make sense for them and sometimes as a protective measure um, mm -hmm. because of the consequences associated with outing oneself uh, as being uh, impacted by the foster care system. Yeah, that yeah. construction yeah. of identity and disclosure is a huge component and a huge consideration for many of our student affairs practitioners serving this population and for many folks uh, with lived experience, whether that be students or practitioners themselves, remembering that there are a variety and many folks, uh, again, as I think we've demonstrated that are engaging in this work that, that do have the lived experience themselves. So being aware of, of how that's landing on our practitioners too. Yes, no, thank you for that. That was super helpful to understand. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about um, who we're talking about in terms of what does the national landscape look like for this, this student group? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to chime in there. I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, we know very limit, little information about the academic trajectories of youth impacted by foster care, in part because NCES data sets, National Center for Education Statistics, don't include proxies uh, in demographic items that allow us to sort of estimate the number of students nationally who have foster care experience, how many of them access college. Now we do have um, data that's collected um, nationally about youth in foster care. So they're roughly 430-ish thousand youth who are currently in foster care. Uh, from some of the studies, some regional, some national reports, we're able to estimate that roughly, you know, though about 50%, I think, graduate uh, from college. It's estimated mm -hmm. upwards of 70% aspire to attend college. As little as, you know, 20% can expect to enroll and anywhere between one to 10% are expected to earn a bachelor's degree. So you see, you start wide with 430 and the number just sort of dissipates. Now there's lots that happens in between that time that shapes and disrupts uh, students uh, pathways too. And one thing to sort of distinguish is that though one aspires to attend college, what one can reasonably expect to attain is different. Uh, so, you know, while youth main exceptionally high rates of uh, interest and aspirations for college, their expectations for college may uh, be diminished because of a range of uh, academic and social challenges that thwart their college going experience. And those statistics yeah. are so powerful, too. I, you know, oftentimes find, find myself citing them or needing to cite them, whether it be in research or in practice to justify sort of why this work matters or why this student population matters. And the numbers do matter. And when we talk about construction of identity and the rhetoric around it, there's huge impact to those statistics, too. I think uh, Dr. Tony Watt, in interviewing a student and included in one of her publications, a quote from a student saying, everything in the news is, is negative. These statistics are so negative. It makes me think that this is all I can sort of aspire to be. On the flip side, there, you know, I think self included, there's this, can be this clinging to, I am a part of the 3%. I think about Dr. Molly Sarubi's uh, title of her dissertation, the stories of the 3%, you know, let's mm -hmm. learn more about the students that make it through. Uh, and there's pride and resilience and all these things tied up in that. But the statistics are, can be really complicated things to, to even think about talking about. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and 
in doing so, I do think that there's unintended consequences of framing this population from a deficit lens, right? And so that's a lot of pushback I've gotten from my dissertation chair around like, how do we continue to frame this population through a strength banks perspective? And so, um, but however, as we know, when it comes to funding, when, you know, as at least as a student affairs practitioner, um, definitely ears perk up when you say only 1% of FOSU graduate, right? Um, but I would also say that we don't know enough about the other 99, 97, 93%, depending on which stat you want to use from Mark Courtney's work, right? Um, I still don't think we, 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 we really know um, the full extent of, of those who are not be, um, able to go to college. And also I would say, um, you know, in my practice at, at UCR, one thing that we do know is that when FOSU youth are supported, they outperform their peers. Um, mm-hmm. So the past four cohorts at, at UCR have a 100% first year retention rate. And in the six years I've been at UCR, I have a 92% graduation rate, right? Um, and, and, and that's not because I'm doing anything super special. It's because they are already special, right? They already have the tools and they have the navigational capital to succeed in higher ed as long as we're able to meet their basic needs and, and really honor like the full humanity that who they are, which they've been in largely denied through their foster experience, right? And so um, I think it's really important to, to continue to understand not only the, like the 3%, but also the 97% as well. Mm-hmm. The other, you know, I've written about this in the, um, the systematic review that I published. You know, one of the challenges is that national student success discourse also doesn't include conversation about youth with experience in foster care. When you think about some of the national college student success initiatives led by major funders, youth in foster care are never mentioned in those conversations. Mm -hmm. So you get commitments for racially ethnic minoritized students, LGBT students, uh, veterans, first-generation students. Youth in foster care cut across these identities at disproportionate rates. So if you're thinking about opportunity to really support a group who is multiply marginalized through a sort of web of institutional structures, you ought to be concerned about youth in foster care. But part of the pushback I get too sometimes with grant funders is population size, sample size, mm. is that how, how, how many students can we serve through a national project? And so some people are not convinced that the group is large enough for us to sort of warrant uh, investments in that way. And we ought to reject that sort of idea um, that, that there is a population uh, who experiences, you know, these sort of uh, outcomes. It should be enough to get us concerned about it. Yes, yes. I, you remind me of a lot of the conversations I've rooted in um, the community that I work with and for in terms of even how universities are investing, even how um, K through 12 institutions are, our schooling is is investing and so it's almost like we don't matter unless we're <laughs> a what you know we, we have the numbers and um and it makes me think about like why don't we ha- we have these numbers should not necessarily matter but you, you're talking about a, the access issue to higher mm-hmm. education and wondering if you can say a little bit more about also um what are sort of these um, challenges that um, are, are are being faced maybe in the K through 12 system, but also like how can a- access counselors really address some of the, the access issues? Because we're talking about a funnel that you're describing. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could touch a little bit about that. Yeah, I can start and others feel free to uh, chime in. Placement changes are residential placement changes mm-hmm. are a significant barrier. And some of the work that I've done on belonging among youth in foster care in the K-12 sector, um, we sort of revealed that, you know, students experience numerous residential placement changes, which have consequences for changes in school. Well, when you change in school, you also fall behind academically. Um, It's difficult to reintegrate and develop, you know, supportive relationships with teachers and peers who would otherwise be you know, um, assets to a student in navigating uh, their pathway to college. Um, there's not a lot of coordination between social workers 
and um, you know uh, the school counselors. And though there is now this sort of through ESSA recently, the most recent authorization, they included language that required that um, you know child welfare agencies and school agencies have to coordinate and work together to sort of reduce school placement changes among students. Well, the reality is that most states haven't articulated and reported plans to do so. So there's not a lot of communication. Um, and so students' records aren't adequately moved. And so when they get to another school, the school is not prepared to serve them and meet their needs in ways that are going to be important for their success. Um, and, and there are a, a wide range of other challenges also. I'm happy to let others chime in. Yeah, just wanted to, to share that ESSA is the Every Student Succeeds um, Act and, and definitely has some provisions. I also think about um, TRIO programming and um, summer bridge programs are intended or one of the kind of lines in there is that there should be specific outreach to youth with experience in foster care. Uh, and oftentimes that isn't happening, again, given some of the transient nature of the population. And, and that's really unfortunate because it is a great resource and, and programmatic support that could be available. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a variety of factors really there that, that can be better exercised to support the student population. Uh, I think even campus tours, uh, speaking from personal experience, not having the opportunity to go on campus tours or be able to consider institutions that were outside of a very small uh, pocket of area and really didn't see myself as college student potential to begin to begin with and the impact of that. And so thinking about and examining in terms of starting to dig into some of the practices that could be improved on college campuses, how our campus tours framed? Is it framed as, oh, you know, did you bring your mom and dad with you? Uh, you know, how is how are folks encouraged to get to campus if there's not transportation support? Are there other options? A uh, variety of different things. You know, how is parent and family weekend framed? Is that framed on the campus tour of, hey, mom and dad, make sure you come back. But also it's important not to overcorrect some of those things either because students with experience in foster care very well may have moms and dads, maybe multiple <laughs> involved in their life or folks that fill that role. And so how can some of the language be shifted to supportive adults uh, to be the, the common kind of identifier perhaps that might be uh, more encompassing of a variety of student experiences, but not assuming that students have a supportive adult in their life and, and having support options for students to connect with folks that can be a supportive adult if they're not engaging in the co college environment with that already. Those are a few considerations that come to my mind too. Yeah, and then and I'll just add to that and in, in, in talking about the K through 12 experiences is as I continue to kind of reframe my own lens and kind of research of like looking at this population is really looking at foster care, not as a foster care to prison pipeline, but as a carceral nexus in and of itself. And so one of my committee members, Dylan Rodriguez here at um, UCR is the one like really pushing me to really understand like the ways in which foster care operates as a site of sur surveillance, uh, per particularly for those families who are Latinx and Black. And um, Dorothy Roberts, a law scholar at uh, UPenn, also writes about this, right? And so what we see in California, in LA, um, LA County is the largest foster care county in the nation. 28% of students who are being educated um, in LA County juvenile halls, 28% of them are foster youth, right? So our foster youth are already incarcerated while, right during their foster experience, which then also makes them a crossover youth, right? Um, and this is all before they even turn 18. And so I think we need to have a, a real kind of precise understanding of their lived experiences even before they go to college and really understand foster care as a carceral nexus, as them trying to navigate a institution that is trying to kind of keep them under this carceral-like regime, right? And so it's really interesting, even when you talk about the word emancipation, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it always, it like, yeah. like, emancipation from what, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're really emancipating from institution that has profited off of your body, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so there is links back to um, from foster care to even slavery and then kind of the ways in which children's bodies are being used to maintain this larger structure where all these adults are making money off of their existence in foster care. Mm 
right? But yet their outcomes are not, are their outcomes don't reveal that the system values the care in foster care, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Let me just say, I can't, I can't wait to read the work mm-hmm. and the dissertation uh, because I think that's an area that we have to explore more. I wrote a brief for um, Office of Community College Research and Leadership Center uh, at Illinois and made a similar point that foster care is in fact a carceral institution. And if we think about the carceral state as extending beyond formal penal institutions, but have adopted the logics of surveillance, punishment, Mm -hmm. and what Sojourner talks about is enclosures, that it's not just that students are police surveilled and punished, Mm -hmm. it's that their odds and life uh, chances are restricted by way of this experiences and that it constitutes an enclosure for them. And I think there is significant, you know, data points and uh, stories uh, that sort of indicate how being in foster care in itself is a is a carceral experience. Um, and I hope that we can engage that conversation in the literature more. Yeah, the, wep- yeah. the weaponization of foster care mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. something that I think often goes unexamined and the ways in which, yeah, slavery absolutely was the first out of home child care, if you <laughs> care in quotes. Um, and from there, how youth were then excluded, black youth, Indigenous youth were excluded for a time period from foster care, immigrant youth, and then it it was used then as a weapon against those populations. And again, if we tr- trace back to, um, you know, tr- the colonization of uh, tribal nations through a foster care system or through the schools, uh, the ways in which uh, foster care was weaponized and then uh, placements, you know, were done transracially, uh, you know, Black and African-American families excluded from being able to care for youth in foster care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in a, this, we're not talking like ancient history. We're talking present day. We're talking policies, you know, from 20, 30 years ago that still exist today, uh, which is really alarming. And also not surprising if we look at how systems are designed to uh, get the outcomes that the system mm-hmm. wants. Can I just add a little bit of context and then we can move on to our next question really quick? Yes, yes, of course. Y'all blowing my mind right now. Well, foster care, in, as it was modernized, um, not its inception, but as it was modernized, was actually in-home services, primarily mm-hmm. afforded to white mothers. Mm-hmm. And then as Black people gained more rights in the 50s and forward, Um, they did not want Black mothers to access those in-home services, especially with this whole like hysteria around the child welfare queen, right? So then instead of offering in-home services, they then created out-of-home foster care because they did not want to give money to Black mothers, but they would say, Mm -hmm. we will take care of your child if you cannot take care of them, right? And so that's then how then foster care now becomes a kind of weaponized um, institution to take children away from their families, right? Perpetuate whiteness. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and so it's basically these white institutions telling black and brown families, um, we will control and we will dictate um, how you're allowed to take care of your um, children, right? Mm. Um, It was first started as in-home placement care. And then once black and brown families gained more rights to public welfare, they did not want them to have that money go straight to them. So instead it was redirected and they created this whole institution called out-of-home foster care placements, right? Wow. Um, that, that this money gets funneled through. In the state of California, at least, some foster parents get paid upwards of $2,000 a month to take care of a child. When we know that the majority of foster care placements happen because a family is, is living in poverty. They just don't have enough money to take care of the child. It's not, most of them are not these outrageous um, cases of abuse and neglect. It's really because they're just a little bit too poor or a lot of it too poor. But then, so instead of just directing that money straight to the family, you (laughs) redirect it. And and, and primarily having a white foster family take care of black and brown children. And it extends to the cis-hetero patriarchy when we start looking at 
uh, you know, gay couples that are unable to serve as foster parents, unable to adopt, and the child family finding campaigns of the, what, 1920s to 1960s of, oh, you, you can't have a child of, of your own, so here, foster a child, or uh, just the language, and talking about language and stigma uh, that's associated with that of literally, you know, referring to children on posters as, you know, this, take this wretched soul. And when we talk, we didn't even get into orphan trains that ran, that separated, you know, immigrant children and shipped them, literally shipped them um, to the Midwest to serve as farm labor. And some were even signed as essentially indentured servants on contracts to provide labor. And again, this was a time frame where certain populations were excluded from foster care and there was whiteness, Christianity tied up in all of this of um, we need to separate these children so that they can go and have a moral upbringing, have a, a Christian upbringing specifically and not, you know, a Protestant upbringing or, or things like that. And so, I mean, really, really problematic in the ways in which that much of that still can even persist today and does. There's so many things running through my head right now. I feel like you, you just sort of exposed a lot of things to me uh, in terms of like the foster care inherently being racist. And also the separation of children continues. And I think my mind goes back to like what's happening at the border, what's happening with our immigration system. You know, it's very much, very parallel to what is happening. So, whew, lots, of, lots going on. Um, my, my next question for y'all is just... The, Concerning student affairs practitioners, what, what do student affairs practitioners need to know? We talk about serving and servingness. Um, what, what, what do student practitioners need to know about um, not only the foster care experiences, which I think you all really highlighted a lot in terms of the historical underpinnings of uh, foster care, but also how that is being perpetuated today. Um, so what kinds of things do we need to know um, uh, about how it, that impacts our students, but in particularly, um, you know, what, what can we do to, to change our structures, to address some of the structures that are not necessarily aligned with this um, student group? Um, I'll just say, too, I kind of feel like we might have covered some of it and leave room for um, my other um, colleagues, but the first one that comes to mind is um, not all marginalized students have, have, have the same marginalizing e experience, right? And so one thing I'm noticing is that what we're said, because foster youth within the college context are a small population, then they want, well, well, then to be able to keep your doors open, you need to increase your population. So you go from targeting specifically foster youth who emancipated from, from care to all foster youth under the FYS umbrella, kinship, group home, crossover youth, et cetera, then to formerly incarcerated students and at some campuses now, including undocumented students, all under this umbrella of guardian scholars or Renaissance scholars or kind of however your program is named. While all those populations are, are important, they all, and, and some of them do cross over, right, and intersect rather, but the foster care experience is still unique in and of itself, and it deserves its own space and place at a campus and dedicated staff. And so my other point is staff who are very well trained in supporting the student population. Now, I will say that the idea of supporting foster youth in, in higher ed is still relatively new. The first program was at Cal State Fullerton in the late 90s. I don't know the exact year. Um, excuse me, um, I know it's the late 90s. So it's still a relatively new idea. Um, however, and, and so we're, we're struggling with, so do we hire a coordinator or director who has an MSW? Do we hire someone who has a master's in higher ed? Do we, right, like, like, like kind of how do we, um, you know, make sure that we have someone who kind of is quote unquote like an expert um, in this field? And so I think we're definitely still learning through um, what is the process of kind of creating a robust support system? But I think one, it starts with understanding that like foster youth are foster youth in, in of themselves and, and deserve their own space. 
and not just layer on these different marginalized student populations just to, you know, um, keep the doors open. Because oftentimes what happens is they feel that pressure. I feel that pressure be, um, because of funding, right? You need more numbers. You need. But one thing I've noticed, the reason why we have such high graduation rate is because we have a smaller population within our program, which allows me to kind of really know all of the students that participate in our program and really give them targeted individual services. I can't possibly do that for 150 students, but I could do it for 30, right? Um, and then along the way, getting really good training um, to be able to su support these students in very unique ways. I've, I've had the unfortunate opportunity to have to go to the hospital to support students and advocate mm -hmm. um, for their needs. I've had to um, talk, you know, a, a range of ride for students when they get released from jail because because of something happened in their life, right? And so, um, and it, you know, I kind of had to learn trial by fire, right? And so I hope that as the new generation of practitioners who want to support foster youth um, have avenues like this podcast um, to kind of learn how to support foster youth in, um, in, in um, critical ways. Thank you. Uh, One thing I'll just add. Yeah, oh, go ahead, ahead Rael. I, I just want to underscore everything that Kenyon said. So go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the only thing I'll add is that, you know, the mere placement of youth in foster care can be a really traumatic experience for a student. And there are all sorts of experiences that can happen in foster care that exacerbate vulnerability and, you know, um, that can exacerbate trauma. Um, and those experiences can shape how students take advantage of resources, whether or not they show up, participate on campus. And so all that to say, I think student affairs professionals have to be mindful of how, like all students, how your past and previous experiences shape how you show up. And so sometimes we foreclose on students because they don't show up in the ways that we sort of expect them to and that we think it's sufficient to say, well, they know about these resources. They should have the agency to take advantage of them. If they don't, they're not serious. And we really need to reject that sort of idea um, because we have an institutional responsibility to support the students who enroll in our institutions. And, um, you know, and we need to do more to learn more and invest in the kinds of professional learning experiences uh, so that we can tailor our practice and resources in ways that are responsive to the uh, needs of students. Some folks are starting to write about trauma-informed care, uh, especially as part of student affairs practice. That's an approach that, that, that is useful uh, and that has a lot of value in thinking about how you best care and support this particular group. So I'll just add that. Yeah, yeah I agree that that's really important. I think, you know, so much of what we've discussed so far around the importance of having a space on campus and having a designated point of contact, a single point of contact, a champion, some campuses call it a variety of different things and use different language. Uh, campus support program is one of the most commonly sort of used terms to describe it, um, is just so incredibly important. And, you know, I will never forget those moments of, of feeling incredibly alone and then those moments of meeting and seeing someone else that has lived experience and care and seeing those possibility models, like even being in this space right now, Dr. Royal Johnson, soon to be Dr. Kenyon Whitman, like <laughs> these are aspirational goals for, for me to, to be in this space. It's like, okay, let, let's do this. Um, and just to witness students uh, also having served as a practitioner at, at a campus support program, having witnessed students saying, this was the first time being involved in a campus support program. I had a student tell me, I started to see my struggle as my strength and my story as my resilience. And so that reframing, that rewiring of that trauma, trauma experience is the rewiring of the stigma and the narrative and the reshaping. That's really what um, these programs and the support and the community and youth themselves, you know, youth and student led programming and initiatives uh, that are adequately resourced have the ability to do. Uh, and as Kenyon was talking about the size of the program too, I also think that there's great examples of schools scaling up 
So I think about Western Michigan University's program that has G about 120 students um, in it. Colorado State University's program uh, is a little bit more grassroots as, as they specifically call it, but it is a collection of staff members that come together that uh, supported the student population and now they do have formalized staffing. So don't feel like you have to have it all together either to start this work. It was like a representative from financial aid and someone from housing, someone from academic advising, having regular committee meetings and saying, you know, let's send care packages. Let's ask the student population if they want care packages. Let's get the roster from financial aid and send them an email and say that we're here to help for FAFSA nights and how to fill it out and provide, let's do, you know, occasional dinners off campus, you know, for some students, their folks might come visit them and take them out for a meal. Let's try to provide that sort of experience in the community. Let's do these mentoring programs, have peer mentors, our faculty and staff mentors. And so, I mean, there's ways to scale at different, different levels, uh, which I also think does speak to a concern that I have though is uh, resource disparity. Uh, we see these programs oftentimes at four-year institutions across the US. I think California has the act together a little bit more sometimes at the community college level depending and Kenyon may have more familiarity to be able to speak to that but there the support you get very much depends on state on institution and on how well resourced that institution is uh, which can certainly be concerning uh, and my last thought was on uh, tr trauma and just how this population tends to have a very high number of adverse childhood experiences so if you take a look at the ACEs um, survey uh, which I believe is what through the CDC and, and a few other uh, resources um, that trauma experiences show up and they also don't end. So I think one of my biggest things is like foster care doesn't just leave you. And that's something that I've come mm. to learn and understand. It still surprises me all the time. And so my dear friend, Dr. Sarah Gomez wrote her dissertation on uh, transition and transitions to, through, and out using Schlossberg's, excuse me, transition theory and found that students described the departure from college even as a second mm. or third emancipation mm -hmm. and trauma mm -hmm. all over again, because now I, I found these connections, I made it work, I had maybe some resources and support, and now it's all over yet again. And mm -hmm. now what's ahead for me? Um, and so I think institutions oftentimes, for those that do have support, don't do a good enough job preparing for that next step of adulthood, of post-college experiences. Uh, and it gives me chills just thinking about it and, and that true concern for, you know, now what are we doing? We fixed one piece of the pipeline. How do we fix the next piece of the pipeline? Yeah, for well, student affairs practitioners who are perhaps listening and who run programs or coordinators of programs uh, targeted for student affairs or for youth uh, impacted by falsely care, know that there are researchers available too to help support evaluation and assessment. I know Angela and I are both part of a team now who are studying two college support programs in kind as a sort of in-kind contribution for um, those practitioners, just to help them, give them useful information, create a data infrastructure so that you can be able to routinely uh, sort of evaluate and better serve the needs of the students. Um, and so that there are folks who are willing to support, collaborate and engage with you in ways that also is, is sort of mindful of the pressures that student affairs practitioners face and having to illustrate and demonstrate outcomes for a program with limited resources and so forth. Um, and so there, there are folks out here who are um, committed to doing that as well. And then and I'll just add, um, you know, Angela mentioned, um, you know, having a, like a, like a grassroots um, start. And I think it's really, that's, that's like really awesome. However, I feel as though foster youth in any marginalized population that has a program at, at a university de deserves the same level of financial support as the university honors program, right? Mm. Um, NASPA, I forget when it was, but it was when Melissa Harris Perry was a keynote. She said, the mission of a university is found not online, but in their line item budget, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, Angela mentioned, um, you know, funding and community colleges in California have it together. I'll just say across, because I work at a UC currently, across all the UCs, none of us have institutional funding. We all fundraise. And so not only do I do one-on-one -on -one support with my students, not only do I manage an entire office and a food pantry and computer lab and all of the things um, I also have to fundraise about $100,000 a year 
to keep our doors open, right? And for about three mm-hmm. of those years, it also included my salary. And, 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 and this is not unique to me. This is many of my colleagues across California, and I would, I would even say across the nation, right? And so, and so what's happening is then we are, um, we, we, we not only do academic advising, um, student support, case management, but now we work in development, right? Um, and, and so what it does is it then takes away my opportunity to further support these students, um, mm. and, and, and so I would say that, yes, a grassroots approach is really important. We, too, have, like, an advisory board of folks from across campus, but but really, like, the university needs to um, value these students no different than their honors programs. Right. I love that, that you brought that to the space, that, and it really points to sort of how we, you know, our budgets really... Uh, really dictate sort of the values of the institution and sort of the fact that you have to fundraise for some of your um, support is, is very telling um, and quite frankly should not be happening. So um, this was an amazing, amazing conversation. One of the things that I want, I, you know, we've been talking about in particularly on our podcast, but I know across the nation is sort of COVID-19 and sort of how did how did COVID-19 impact this particular group that we're, that you're working with for? Yeah, so it's ironic that, you know, I was already collecting data before um, the pandemic hit. So I've been engaged in life history interviews with a national sample of youth in foster care, current college students, and then the pandemic hit. And then I sort of wrestled with what, what are the sort of ethics for engaging in research in this particular time? In what ways can I mitigate harm? How can I be supportive mm-hmm. and helpful? You know, so my student and I crowdsourced um, resources that were made, being made available during the pandemic. We sent it to all of the students who have been, you know, participating in our studies. We increased the stipend for students to $50, uh, you know, per interview and just sort of made ourselves available beyond the sort of, um, expectations for IRB. I just offer that because that, you know, doing research in a pandemic is really, um, you know, it's important Mm -hmm. that we, that we know and learn how uh, a national, you know, global, uh, you know, health crisis is impacting some of our most vulnerable populations. That said, you know, the, the things that we learned aren't surprising, you know, that, that the pandemic exacerbated existing challenges with housing and security. Sarah Goldrick Robb and her center, the Hope Center, have done great work in bringing a sort of a national portrait of um, the statistics of youth involved. Now, some of the data is imprecise based on the sort of metrics that they use around financial aid uh, to identify youth in foster care, but generally their, their research is suggesting that, you know, youth in care, in college, uh, experience higher rates of homelessness, higher rates of um, um, f- food insecurity in ways that um, other populations don't. But what I've been able to get through the stories of experiences is how they, you know, the support structures, the devalued forms of capital that they have activated to navigate in an inequitable sort of situation. So whether it's kinship networks uh, to um, couch surf and stay with a friend or family, uh, you know, when the doors of college and universities closed in January, it, cre- it, it created an immediate need um, that, you know, higher ed folks have to think about, you know, the implications of our actions for all students. Um, and so when housing closed with access to, to food pantries and um, dining halls closed, it, it created uh, an exacerbated um, needs for students. Access to mental health resources mm-hmm. during the pandemic. If you are already dealing with issues related to depression and social uh, alienation and marginalization, the pandemic likely exacerbated that for some folks. Uh, and, and it's certainly true for the students in my study, but I've been just fascinated by the ways that they've created uh, community virtually, the way that the, the, the risks that they took also to be in community with people given um, lack of kind of family support. And we're working on a paper now to try to document some of this for a special issue uh, about the pandemic, but I'm, certainly others uh, have insights about this. 
Yeah. And yeah. Foster Club, I know, did a survey and, and has the specific number, some specific numbers, again, from, from their specific survey population around how many uh, young people, you know, lost their jobs during this time, lost their, their housing, and also the impact of isolation. And I also think about how, what's coming down the pipeline. How did uh, the continued COVID-19 pandemics, we're not through it, uh, impact those that are at the age of transitioning out of foster care or preparing to go to college and how does that impact how they're entering into college um, you know for some it meant having to linger in foster care for maybe longer than they intended because there wasn't another option maybe they wanted to move out of their foster home and, and move somewhere else and find a job or you know before going to college and that was no longer an option a variety of, of things happened there. It delayed reunifications for some folks that may have been lined up to be reunited with with family and with biological family or family of origin. And so, you know, that can pose some challenges we might see down the pipeline two years from now when students start coming to college that, uh, you know, talk about, well, I was supposed to be reunited, but it was delayed because of the pandemic, or I didn't get to see my siblings that were placed in another home for X period of time. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to see my, have visitation with my family. Uh, you know, we could get into Wi-Fi and the need for universal <laughs> Wi-Fi and, and the limitations around where that's available and how a variety of, of things there. Uh, but there is some federal provisions that allow, uh, in the midst of the pandemic, allow youth with experience in foster care to remain in foster care for a, a longer period of time for those that, that can be a safety net in some regards. But again, if that's if you're totally done with the foster care system because of all the harm that it's caused you, is that something you want to continue to engage in? Maybe not. So it's really complicated. Wow. So that's, I think that that really just sums up a lot of, um, you know, what, what uh, our students are also facing that are, you know, also first generation and low income. But, um, but yeah, so thank you for that. Um, as we conclude, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. I'd love to hear what each of you are pondering, questioning, troubling now. So um, I'm going to start with Kenyon. Um, I'm not sure necessarily if I'm pondering, questioning, but as I leave my current, um, you know, position, working with foster youth full time in in the trenches, it feels like sometimes um, I've always kind of had the model, our motto that if you could learn to serve the most marginalized, you can learn to serve everyone. And I, and, and, I, and I do believe that when you when you look at the directors and coordinators that do the amazing work of serving foster youth, they are some of the more marginalized students on college campuses. And these coordinators and directors do amazing work. And I do think that there is a, um, although kind of our field and kind of the idea of supporting foster youth is kind of relatively new still within higher ed, um, I think that there's a lot of, of, of best practices that other student affairs practitioners and other units of higher ed can learn from coordinators and directors that support foster youth. Kind of like I um, alluded to um, earlier, you know, we have to do everything from one-on-one -on -one advising to case management to development, you know, and so all these multiple hats that we wear makes us really versatile and agile to, to really serve the unique needs of students. Foster youth show up as Black, Latinx, LGBTQ, right? Um, and then all, and on top of all of that, what we're really trying to do is really fill in that gap of family privilege, right? Like mm -hmm. the family that foster care robbed them of, we're really mm -hmm. trying to fill in that gap to our best of, of ability, right? That, you know, Angela said a, um, um, a night where you fill out your financial aid application. For, for many students who did not grow up in foster care, they would have a trusting parent or an adult to call upon to help them with that application process. And so for many of the students who participate in, in my program, um, for better or for worse, I often become that person, right? And so I, I think there's a lot that we can learn from uh, student affairs practitioners who support foster youth. Thank you. Angela, do you want to go next? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as Kenyon was talking, it reminded me of, of all of the things that I am also pondering. Um, I think about uh, when we talk about, you know, the stigma and family privilege and all of these pieces, 
it makes me think about um, Kathy Davidson in the new education uh, book says one of the first steps in revolutionizing higher ed is to look at the legacy assumptions and then identify models that respond to different assumptions. And I've been using that to think about my, my work and my research and supporting students with experience in foster care. And I think about what are the uh, legacy assumptions of higher education. And I think that higher education hasn't done a good enough job at looking at those legacy assumptions that impact a variety of populations, impact all of our students, all of our students of all identities, these legacy assumptions impact, um, but specifically as it relates to students with experience in foster care and institutions assumption that there is family privilege, that there is this stable family support structure. It is so ingrained in, in really almost every aspect of the going to college experience, the college experience, the graduation experience, post-graduation support that's sort of expected in the launch to adulthood. And I think it's important to acknowledge too that that, that assumption of family privilege not only impacts students with experience in foster care. So we got into all of the reasons why that experience is unique, but there are a variety of other populations that this also harms, this expectation. And then when we get into the assumption, uh, legacy assumption as it relates to who is a, a person with experience in foster care and the identity construction, that could be a whole other conversation. But I think that there's hope. So when we think about models responding to other assumptions, I think about campus-based support programs as that model, as that beacon of how can we do better, how can we do different, uh, and reaching out to you know those offices and staff to better understand how forms and processes and events can can be improved, but also keeping in mind that these folks, as Kenyon talked about, are incredibly taxed, and any time that you are taking from them is taking away from serving a direct student. So um, encouraging folks to to educate themselves. So that's really troubling me, and something I'm pondering about is how do we examine these assumptions and continue to do better um, and serve the student population. Yeah. So I am thinking a lot about what does it mean to defund foster care? Yes. And I listened to the podcast with Charles, Jude, and uh, Aaron around policing. Yeah. And, you know, I'm aware of the conversations around defund policing. And if we think about policing as part of a larger carceral apparatus that punishes, criminalizes, surveils, regulates, mostly Black, Latinx, and other, you know, uh, economically disenfranchised populations across a number of identities, foster care is the same. If you think about a system that purports to do good by, you know, removing youth from dangerous, vulnerable sorts of situations uh, to protect it, it's a system that disparately impacts Black and Brown youth youth from, you know, uh, low, and it doesn't deal with root cause issues. So if we think about the Kingan's point earlier about poverty is connected to this conversation, residential segregation is connected to, the, so mm -hmm. if we deal with the root cause issues, then we don't need foster care. We have less issues sort of mounting in homes and families that lead to their placement in foster care. Now, even that is sort of a imprecise in, in because what we also know is that Communities of color are most disparately impacted when it's uh, when, when it's referral to foster care. So families, um, black and brown families, are more um, likely to be deemed unsafe for kids than white environments. So there's so many other root issues that foster care doesn't deal with, and I and I'm still wrestling with what does it mean to defund this system Sorry. that that in in effect does more harm for a group and community um, that just deserves better. Um, so I, I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> yes, those, those are really great points to end on. And I know all of you dropped a lot of scholarship in, um, in the conversation. So hopefully we can get those in our show notes that I'm excited to even read some of the, the scholarship that you're all producing. So definitely um, let us know how we can highlight that work here on this podcast. So. Thank you so much to all the knowledge that you brought to the space. I appreciate you. I appreciate all the learning that transpired here. Um, I'm very grateful. Uh, I just want to take an opportunity to thank our sponsors, which is Leadership and Everfi, Leadership Partners with Colleges and Universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person, for students, professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. 
Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. Please uh, visit the leadership website at um, www.leadership.org backslash virtual programs or connect with their Facebook or Twitter, and they're all on the social media. And also, we want to give a shout out to EverFi. How will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students rate commitment to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academics and extracurriculars. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. Over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities with nine efficiency studies behind our courses. You will have the confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove. To transform the future of your institution and the community you serve, learn more about everfi.com, affairs backslash now. Huge shout out too to Nat uh, Ambrosi, who's a production assistant, who makes us all look good here and sound good. If you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletters, please visit our website at junifairs.com um, and scroll down below to our homepage to add your name to our MailChimp list. Um, while you're checking out our, our archives. So again, my name is Susana Munoz. Thanks again for a great, fabulous guest today who shared their knowledge and to everyone who's listening and watching, make it a great week.